from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from the Centre for European Reform. I'm Ian Bond, the Director of Foreign Policy at the CER, and I'm delighted to be joined today by my colleague Luigi Scazzieri, a Research Fellow at the CER, and by Georgina Wright, an old friend who used to be at Chatham House and the Institute for Government, and um, if I can describe it this way, is now self-exiled in Paris as the head of the Europe programme at the Institut Montaigne. Um, and I must say, I was rather envious of her accounts of um, pavement cafes and uh, working lunches and breakfasts in, in Paris. Sounds a lot better than uh, the situation in London at the moment. Anyway, we're going to be talking about the UK's post-Brexit foreign policy cooperation with the EU, or, or rather its absence. We, we've got into this situation. When, when Theresa May was Prime Minister, she wanted a formal agreement on institutional arrangements for foreign security and defence policy cooperation with the EU as part of a post-Brexit package deal. And Boris Johnson, Dominic Raab and David Frost, by contrast, see foreign policy as basically a matter for sovereign states and not something for an international institution, even one with pretensions to state-like power, at least as they would see it. And so they consistently refused to, to discuss an agreement uh, during the negotiations with the EU on the future relationship, even though the EU had a draft ready. So uh, the question I think we'll be addressing today, or one of the questions that we'll address today is, are the current British leaders right? Can the UK achieve its foreign policy aims without having any formal foreign policy relationship with the EU? And, and if so, what's the best way for them to approach that? So, uh, Luigi, you just published a very good and uh, commendably short paper with support from the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung, uh, which is entitled Bridging the Channel, How Europe and the UK Can Work Together in Foreign Policy. What can you tell me about the UK's current approach to foreign policy cooperation with its former partners? Well, thank you very much, Ian. I think you um, you summarised the UK's thinking very well in the sense that there was a, a feeling that it was simply not worth having an agreement uh, with the EU, that it was sufficient to talk to the main member states, that EU defence policy initiatives like the newly launched European Defence Fund didn't amount to much. Um, and that, in, in general, uh, you, you simply didn't need an agreement, partly because of sovereignty concerns as well, which is quite striking, by the way, that this is happening at a time uh, when other actors are starting to take the EU more seriously. So the US, uh, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, is, is really taking EU uh, security and defence initiatives more seriously, having agreed, amongst other things, um, to, um, to participate in, in a project on, on facilitating military mobility, but also to, to talk more on security and defense and on uh, relations with China, something that the UK is, uh, is not, not keen on doing. But, but in general, if I may say a few words about how the UK plans to approach relations with other member states, 
I think London wants to take a three-pronged approach, if I might describe it. So um, the first is line of effort is, is strengthening bilateral relationships with uh, key member states uh, to keep lines of communication open, to keep abreast of what other countries are thinking, and to, to try and influence them as well. And the integrated review on, on foreign policy sets out a range of, uh, of European member states with which the UK wants to work more closely, France, Germany, Italy, but also uh, other ones, uh, essentially in order of size, but, but it names quite a few, such as Poland, Spain, and so on. Um, the second way in which the UK wants to work together with, with its European partners is in small groups uh, outside of EU structures. Uh, so this means both military-focused small groups, such as the the French-led European Intervention Initiative or the UK-led Joint Expeditionary Force. And the purpose of these groups in general is to strengthen military cooperation, but also strengthen bilateral relationships. And the second type of small groups is, is uh, diplomatic small groups like the E3 of France, Germany and the UK, which are essentially aimed at coordination in relation to specific crises. And their main advantage is that they can act more quickly uh, than the European Union because it's much easier to reach consensus. And the third and final way in which the UK wants to work with, uh, with its allies is, uh, is through existing institutions of which uh, both sides are, are members, uh, or at least many uh, EU member states and the UK are members, like the NATO uh, and, and the G7. And the UK, along with the US, is particularly keen on strengthening NATO's political dimension and, uh, and as we saw with, with the recent G7 summit, the UK is keen on making more of the G7. It invited Australia, India, South Africa, and South Korea to virtually attend the recent summit. And in general, it's tried to use the group as a platform to, to tackle global challenges. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's an interesting set of approaches. I mean, Georgina, if I can turn to you. Uh, thinking about particularly that, that first aspect of, of uh, bilateral cooperation, I mean, I often get the feeling that, that Macron is also quite impatient with EU foreign policy coordination at, uh, at 27. Uh, you know, he's he's been well known for launching unilateral initiatives, whether that's uh, holding a summit with Russia or uh, supporting what some might regard as the wrong side in, in Libya. So, I mean, you know, is there a French preference for the, the same sort of bilateral or minilateral cooperation that, um, that the UK is now pursuing? And, you know, I'm thinking back now a couple of years, I suppose, to when Macron suggested that there ought to be a European Security Council with the UK as a member. Does, does he see that as a, as a better venue for serious countries to discuss foreign policy rather than doing it within the EU? Thank you, Ian, and bonjour from, from Paris. It's so lovely to be um, talking to you and Luigi. Look, it's a really good question, and I think um, you're absolutely right that Macron from the very beginning has been, you know, tabling ideas on how the EU can be a more credible foreign policy actor. And I think there are two things that are really important to Macron. One, he thinks the EU should do more. And at the moment, he feels that 
the way that the EU operates, the fact that you often need the, the view and the and the consent of all member states is, is stopping the EU from doing more. So he says, you know, the EU should be open to having a core group of countries, but importantly, who embrace EU spirit and its original ambition. Those are his words, not mine. Um, and then he also talks about flexible formats, which are more sort of temporary alliances. And then he is open to third you know, country cooperation. But at the heart of it, he does really believe that you know the EU has a role to play. And so, of course, if you have a UK government that is so um, perhaps confrontational and slightly antagonistic towards the EU as an institution, it does make sort of um, that attempt to kind of think constructively much harder. But that being said, I think the French are pragmatic. They were one of the only member states which, you know, in 2017 were thinking, okay, well, what how are we going to work with the UK in the area of security and defense after Brexit? Um, how can we make sure that we continue to work together? How can we make sure that the UK isn't fully or, you know, in the arms of the United States still remains that kind of position where it could be in between both? Uh, but of course, the way that the negotiations over Brexit were handled and of course, some of the positions of the UK government today make that dialogue difficult. But I think fundamentally in Paris, there is a lot of pragmatism. When I talk to officials or people, you know, interested in policy, they say the UK is the only other, you know, European uh, country with a permanent seat on the UN Security Council. We already enjoy a strong bilateral relationship in defence and security. You know, we've got lots of treaties underpinning that bilateral um, cooperation, but also that actually the integrated review shows that France and the UK share much of the same kind of international outlook. So, you know, guarantors of European security, but also presence in Asia and Africa and fundamentally share a much broader definition of a threat. So it isn't just about terrorism. It isn't just about, you know, security issues. It is about tackling climate change, biodiversity and all the rest of it. So there is there a sense that they need to work with the UK. But at the moment, it's quite tricky, given the politics surrounding Brexit. Yeah. I mean, a, a follow up to that. I mean, you, you talk about French pragmatism. And maybe another example of that is on June the 30th, uh, the UK and Germany um, issued a joint declaration on foreign policy cooperation. Um, and that for me was quite interesting because, you know, there's a kind of short paragraph saying the EU is central to, um, to Germany's conception. Um, but, you know, by and large, it kind of bypasses the, the EU um, as an issue. Um, I mean, one way of reading that is that the Germans have decided that the only way to work with the UK is to do it outside any um, EU framework and in formats like the E3. And I, I wondered, you know, do you know how the French have reacted to the to this um, UK Germany declaration? And will they be feeling that they need something similar, or will they feel that um, you know this is the Germans kind of playing catch up with the Lancaster House treaties? So I think a bit of both. Before it was announced, there was sort of a rumour going around Paris that this, this might happen. And I think um, the, the policy community was very split. On the one hand, they thought, goodness, this is the UK's attempt to bypass the EU completely. This will weaken the EU as an actor. And then there are other people who are saying, actually, we need as many channels of influence as possible. We need to have open channels of communication. And if the Germans want to set up 
a strong kind of, uh, you know, yearly annual meeting to discuss foreign policy issues, then they should do that. And of course, the reality is the French and the Germans speak on a daily basis at Mount, pretty much all levels of government. Um, and, you know, they know that it will be very difficult if Germany and the UK have sort of a discussion on a particular way that they can act, I don't know, in Africa or whatever, it's very likely that that the French will be informed about it and that it might actually broaden out to a trilateral dialogue. And I think for the Germans, it was particularly important not to just have this, um, you know, replacing UK cooperation by UK, Germany and France, because there are other member states. France is known to sort of unilaterally, as you say, announce things and, and to have you know, annoyed more than one uh, member state, including uh, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe. And Germany wants to make sure that it has a balanced approach. If the UK refuses to have a structured foreign policy cooperation with the EU, then we need to be mindful to kind of bring as many EU countries as possible when they share common interests. So in a sense, I think there's pragmatism in Paris. We need to make sure that this UK-Germany agreement doesn't weaken the EU's ability to act and to speak in one voice, but equally, it's very good that the UK is having as many dialogues as possible because that means that we can be informed and we can try and think out of the box um, given certain limitations existing today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Luigi, if I could turn back to you, I mean, one of the forums in which the, the UK is looking to hold foreign policy um, dialogues with its partners is is um, by beefing up foreign policy consultations at NATO. Um, I mean, well, I wonder, you know, do you have any sense of whether that is likely to appeal, first of all, to other non-EU NATO allies? I mean, above all the US, but, but also others like the Norwegians, say, or the Canadians. Um, and And is it realistic to think that that consultations in NATO on, say, Belarus would be able to deliver the same outcomes for the UK as discussions with the EU External Action Service or with the um, uh, the EU 27 in the Political and Security Committee? And and if it's not going to deliver the same outcomes, why not? That's a very interesting uh, set of questions. It, to the first part of, of your question, I think there is amongst non-EU allies, especially substantial appetite to, uh, to consult more within NATO, particularly on China. And that's of course, something that the US is very keen on, as we saw in uh, the many mentions of China in the recent uh, NATO leaders uh, statement. Um, in terms of whether Others are as keen. That's not the feeling that I'm getting. Um, but they won't stop. They are. The, the declaration did say that leaders agreed to consult more politically. And I think the effectiveness of such consultation will vary issue by issue. So on China, which is the main issue uh, for the UK and also the US, Ultimately, it's not as if NATO is planning to take on a much larger role in addressing the military threat from China, but rather many of the actions contemplated in relation to the challenge from China are about increasing uh, defenses, especially increasing resilience, whether that is 
the resilience of supply chains, resilience to cyber attacks, disinformation, and also making sure that the West maintains uh, a technological edge in, in, in tech and in AI. And I think most EU member states uh, that are members of NATO will think that these are challenges that fall more naturally to the EU than to NATO, because they are challenges with an economic dimension, a very prominent one, a regulatory dimension, and the tools to address them are to be found in the EU. Uh, the EU is the organizations in which member states, including many non-members of NATO, take decisions on, on such uh, economic matters. And it's the organization that has the economic tools to address them. So uh, on these types of issues, I think not talking to the EU is going to be especially difficult when it comes to an issue like Belarus and other similar security issues, I think it makes more sense uh, potentially for debates to take place in NATO. But even in that case, to impose economic sanctions, you'd have to, to involve the EU because it's only through the EU that member states can impose economic sanctions. Can I also add a couple of things on, on the Germany um, agreement that we mentioned? Yeah, certainly, certainly. I have a feeling that Essentially, the UK and Germany both saw that theirs was the least developed of the, the major European bilateral relationships. You've got a very highly developed Franco-German relationship, as, as Georgie mentioned, and um, a very uh, well-developed uh, UK-France relationship. So both sides, I think, recognised that there was a need to deepen consultation through this newly established strategic dialogue, the, the annual meeting of foreign ministers that's been set up. Um, to, to ensure that trust is maintained, channels of communication are kept open, and, and from both sides, I think, to also ensure that the other does not stray too far from, from its own positions. But I think that there are going to be limits to what, uh, what can be done, particularly from the UK's perspective, in the sense that Germany is sensitive uh, to concerns of other member states of undermining EU foreign policy. And I don't want to overplay this too much. Germany, after all, has, um, has endured many complaints from other member states about Nord Stream 2. It hasn't stopped it from going ahead with the project. Uh, its uh, stance towards the Eastern Mediterranean has uh, not, not always been very well received by Greece and Cyprus. Germany's selling submarines to, to Turkey, for example. Um, but nevertheless, I do think that UK-EU tensions will pose a substantial barrier uh, to uh, UK-German cooperation, to Germany's willingness and ability to work with the UK. I think Germany will work with the UK more than some member states will like it to, but substantially less than the UK hopes. Um, and uh, yeah, all, all the other things that I mentioned in relation to NATO would also be issues in the bilateral relationship, namely that many issues that are of relevance to both sides need the EU's involvement to be effectively addressed. Mm. I mean, one, one way in which this has sort of been partly dealt with in the past is through the participation of the um, high representative in E3 um, discussions. That was particularly true in relation to Iran and the, um, uh, the deal on ending Iran's nuclear activities. Um, 
I mean, perhaps I can ask uh, you, Luigi, first, but, uh, you know, do you think that um, for countries that are not part of the E3 and indeed for Germany, if it's sensitive to this issue of exclusion of other EU member states, you know, is it is it enough if the EAS are systematically involved in E3 discussions and is that too much for the UK? I think for the states that wouldn't be otherwise included, it's, uh, it's very much of a second best option. Uh, most of them, for instance, Italy would, would much rather be included or they should be addressed through the EU. But if it can't uh, have either of those things, then having the EAS in is better than being completely excluded. Um, and from the UK's perspective, so far we, we haven't seen that much willingness I and mean, there, there is far less willingness arguably to work with the EAS now than there was when, um, when the UK was still a member, but it is more important now because involving the EAS can reduce those frictions. Um, it, it will, I think, depend on an issue by issue uh, basis. Um, in the case of Iran, the EAS's involvement is, is more well, uh, well established. Um, and of course the EAS, as represented by the high representative, is within the G7. So that has helped, in a sense, ease some of the tensions perhaps around the G7 being more and more of an important framework. But uh, yes, if I was to give a, a piece of advice to, uh, to European policymakers, it would be that involving the EU institutions um, eases those sources of friction within the EU and therefore helps maintain European cohesion. And from the UK's perspective, it doesn't really make things slower, but it endows them with greater legitimacy and therefore also makes other EU member states more willing to work with you as the UK. Uh, and it doesn't need a formal agreement to happen. So uh, it's really something that uh, I hope to see more of going forward. Yeah. I mean, Georgie, do you think that the, um, that the French will be sort of nudging the UK in the direction of accepting the EAS as a, a participant in their, um, in their E3 meetings? Or is this more of a kind of um, sensitive German issue? It's an excellent question. And so before I answer it, I just wanted to come back to something that Luigi said, because I think there are two things right now. There's how the UK approaches cooperating with individual member states or groups of member states. So that's kind of how you do it, as you say, usually, you know, do you limit it to France, Germany? Do you include the EAS? But it's also what the UK does. And at the moment, the UK has published a strategy. Um, it had quite a big diplomatic exercise where embassies were trying to explain to, to different governments. But there was a question that kept on coming again and again, which is, this is an incredibly impressive document but it does appear to be a long wish list of priorities. What are going to be the top three things that you're going to do and how are you going to do it? And how do you see us, you know, what partnerships are going to matter to you? And until the UK is able to answer those questions, it's going to be, you know, you can have as many dialogues and consultations as you want. You need to actually have something to offer, something to put down on the table. And I think, you know, the EU and, and individual member states are waiting to see what that looks like. Now, to answer your questions on, on the EAS and France, I think France is in a bit of a tricky position. So I think if you ask a French official, they'd probably give you a vague answer because France is about to take on the presidency of the council from January to uh, July 2022. Now, 
you're not really supposed to be a leader at that time. You're supposed to be the consensus builder. You're supposed to be the one that tries to bring, uh, you know, um, and member states together, move um, policy agendas forward. And their count, their presidency of the council is going to happen at the same time as the presidential election. So I think if there are battles that France is going to pick, it's probably going to pick them wisely. And here, even if, you know, because um, I think certainly some people in Paris would probably be thinking, let's leave it up to big member states perhaps to talk with the UK first and then bring in the EAS once we have a, a, a sort of an agreed tentative position. If, if the EU felt strongly about, you know, the high representative being there, I think France would probably accept because this isn't the time to pick a fight with the EU, especially if Macron is, um, you know, going to present himself and wants to be re-elected in April. So I think... Um, even if some would object, perhaps in the initial meetings with the UK, uh, they probably wouldn't say it outright. Okay, no, that's uh, that's interesting. Of course, the the presidency is indeed a, a very important feature of the first half of next year, particularly. Yeah, Luigi, perhaps just a, um, a question about the transatlantic relationship and how the the kind of UK US and EU-US and EU-UK relationships interact with each other. I mean, you you alluded earlier to the various dialogues that there are now either established or about to be established. I mean, at the um, EU-US summit, they agreed that they would set up a high-level dialogue on, on Russia to go alongside that on China. Um, I mean, is... Is there a, a risk for the UK that, um, having said, you know, how enormously important the relationship with the US is to um, to Britain, um, that actually the UK gets squeezed out of a kind of new EU-US transatlantic love-in? That's a very interesting question. I'm just going to add a tiny footnote to, uh, to the EAS discussion, which is that I think its involvement is not of paramount importance in bilateral relations. It is much more important that the EAS is involved when we're dealing with uh, small groups, I think, uh, because they are the ones that would uh, more weaken uh, European foreign policy. Concerning the, the transatlantic dimension, I think um, that risk exists. And it is quite striking when you look at as I alluded to at the start, how seriously the US seems to be taking the EU and dialogue with the EU, how many of these new initiatives have been set up uh, to consult on, on security issues, but also on things like the resilience of supply chains and uh, the, the very much uh, discussed uh, transatlantic uh, tech uh, council. Now, I think a lot depends on whether these initiatives prove to be just uh, talking shops or whether they actually manage to plant the seeds of much greater EU-US cooperation. Um, our colleagues that uh, that deal with economic issues would no doubt uh, tell us that actually there are many, uh, many problems standing in the way of greater EU-US cooperation in areas like uh, tech with uh, the two sides seeing uh, the, the, these issues very differently. But nonetheless, especially in the field of security, I think it, it, it is... Uh, just so striking to see how far the UK has drifted as opposed to the US. Let's also remember that other countries like Norway, like Canada, have applied to join uh, the EU's uh, military mobility scheme, which supports EU-NATO cooperation, by the way, which is something that 
the UK says it's very keen on and uh, the UK-Germany joint declaration uh, also highlights. Um, so so it, Turkey has also applied to join that scheme. Um, so it, it's striking to see the UK not present. But of course, the UK uh, hopes to be uh, very much, uh, I think, involved in, in these discussions, but wants them to take place in other formats. So within the G7 framework, for example, or also bilaterally with the US, uh, within uh, channels uh, underpinned by the newly signed uh, Atlantic uh, Charter that, uh, that Boris Johnson and Joe Biden concluded um, on the margins of the of the G7 summit. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think that that leads me sort of quite well, actually, into my my last question, which I'll put to each of you. Um, which is, do you think there is any chance that um, the the UK is going to um, revisit its stance on foreign policy cooperation with the EU, um, either now or perhaps under a future government? Or do you think you know that that um, the caravan has moved on and that the the future prospects are for? Um, any foreign policy cooperation between the UK and its European partners to, to have to go on with minimal EU involvement. I mean, George, Georgina, what do you think about that? So I, I was always of the view that, then, you know, we needed a period of mourning after Brexit negotiations before we could really think about a new relationship outside or new ways of cooperating outside of the scope of the trade agreement that's in place. But I think, you know, this obviously depends a lot on the UK and whether it wants and how it wants to cooperate with the EU, but it also depends a lot on the EU. And as you said earlier, Ian, there are, you know, the EU are divided, or member states are divided on pretty much every single foreign policy issue. And it means that I think if the EU managed to do something that was really different, then perhaps this government or maybe a future government would think, well, actually, this is a reason why we should cooperate because public opinion, you look at public opinion surveys in the UK, they say that actually, you know, the public does support a close UK-EU relationship. I think if the EU did something really that made a difference, it might be very difficult for the government to continue saying, do you know what, we're not going, we're refusing any form of structured foreign policy cooperation. So it depends on, on UK willingness, but also on what the EU does. Um, and then I think until then, we're going to have to see new flexible ways of working together. And Luigi's paper, and obviously just now we've been discussing all different ways, whether it's a UN, EU, sorry, European Security Council, whether it's the E3 format, whether it's just sort of new alliances and partnerships that pop up to address certain issues like the Sahel or, you know, new crisis. I don't know, maybe you could even think some way of cooperating with Taiwan. There are all sorts of ways that we can think uh, that the UK and individual member states can work together. Um, but time is, you know, time is marching on and strategic challenges cannot afford for strategic patience. And I think something's going to have to give on both sides. Um, and I'm not sure we're going to see it this side of 2022. Mm. I mean, Luigi, do you, do you share that slightly sort of um, pessimistic uh, view um, based on your contacts with British officials while you were writing the paper yes I'd, I'd be even even more pessimistic I think first of all I agree on the on the fact that we're going to see you know given EU divisions on so many issues especially on those issues where 
you can move ahead in smaller groups, which mostly relate to security and diplomatic crisis rather than economic issues, then I think we're going to see more and more of ad hoc coalitions, small groups of which the UK will probably be part sometimes, the US will be part, and, uh, and others as well, depending on the specific issue at hand. I don't think we're going to see an EU-UK foreign policy agreement for a substantial period of time. Um, but this does not per se mean that there won't be EU-UK consultations. I think in a piece of research that we did uh, together with our colleague Senem a couple of months ago, we, we actually found that there's plenty of scope for the EU to work with countries even outside of formal agreements. So if there was a change of heart in London that this need not translate into having to sign a formal agreement with the EU. I mean, the, the main burden is clearly on the UK, but the EU side could put forward in time a better offer for deeper cooperation with close partners such as the UK, including closer, more frequent consultations. And also, um, it would make sense at some stage for the EU to contemplate closer involvement of third country close partners in its defense tools like the EDF, um, given the, the importance uh, of, of the industrial basis of countries like the UK in contributing to uh, Europe's defense in a broad sense. Um, so yes, my, my concluding word is, I, I think there is space for closer cooperation informally within the next two years perhaps, but I think formal cooperation would require a change of government in the UK. Yeah, I think I, I would um, share that view. I mean, I think the US has a role to play in this um, because I suspect that they will be encouraging the UK to join in coordinated foreign policy actions by Brussels and Washington, especially in areas like imposing sanctions on bad actors, whether that's China or Russia or Iran. Um, but I think it's going to be a very slow process and, and perhaps there will be more going on behind the scenes than the government wants to admit to uh, in public, given its um, rather ideological stance on this. Anyway, um, with that, let's, let's wrap it up. Um, I'd like to thank both Luigi Scazzieri and Georgina Wright for um, taking part in this podcast today. And thanks to everyone for listening to it. And please subscribe to our podcast wherever you usually listen to your podcasts and leave us a review if you can. And uh, finally, let me say um, to everybody listening, have a great summer and goodbye. Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.